Welcome to the Issa Rugby Podcast, where we bring you the latest news, updates, and interviews. With more insights from the Springboks. It is the Springboks champions of the world. The Junior Box, the Blitzbox, our two national women's teams, local competitions, and more. Good day and welcome to a special episode of the SA Rugby Podcast. On Monday, June 8, SA Rugby CEO Yuri Ru addressed the media and gave a breakdown of the situation with rugby in South Africa amid the COVID-19 pandemic. He also spoke about plans being put in place for a return to play, the potential reworking of the international test calendar and next year's tour of the British and Irish Lions to South Africa. I am De Jong Borchard and I work for SA Rugby's communications department. Over to Yuri. I'll, I'll probably start off where everybody uh, uh, ended off, and and that was if you have asked me in November whether this was going to be uh, the 2020 I was looking forward to, absolutely not. Uh, I was looking forward to uh, increased sponsorships, uh, fairer negotiations, uh, higher broadcasting deals, and everything else that you get when uh, when your team actually uh, wins the World Cup and becomes the world champions. So. Uh, having said that, had we not done that, we would have also been in a far worse position than what we are currently. And uh, it stood us um, very well through this time and in our negotiations and in the way forward. Uh, we've made some significant press releases on the on the industry mitigation strategy and the financial impact plan that comes with it, along with the salary plan. So I'm not going to elaborate too much on that, just on where we currently are within the COVID situation. Uh, I have to acknowledge all of the unions, uh, all of the players and all of the staff of, of SA Rugby that has been part of that. It's probably the best collaboration I've ever seen in SA Rugby. Uh, we got together, at, it took us just over a month, uh, but we got to a plan that is workable for SA Rugby and that will most probably get us through this really tough time so that we're able to, to fight another day. Um, when that another day is, is a very fluid at this moment. And like everything else in, in this pandemic and in South Africa, you know, it changes from a week to week basis. But the essence of where we were there is that at about two, two and a half months ago, we had to make some, some assumptions on which direction this pandemic was going. And more specifically, in terms of how we play, when we play and the commercial circumstances that came with that. Uh, we had basically three scenarios. One scenario is government makes announcement quite quickly and we need to be ready to get back onto the park. It will not have a big commercial effect on us um, and we'll start playing and life is good. Our second scenario was probably a more realistic scenario. Return back to um, to competitions in September um, and go and negotiate with all of your broadcasters and all of your sponsors on what will be the reduction of those commercial contracts as a whole and then make some financial decisions on that. And then we had what we call the doomsday scenario. Basically, we don't play rugby for the rest of the year. Uh, then go negotiate with all of your sponsors and broadcasters and, and hear what that result is. So we made all of those assumptions, um, all of those scenario plannings, um, and we basically ended up with a, with a, with a latter two of those scenarios. Um, the one being we return to play in September, and the other one is we don't play at all. For us to be able to then navigate the commercial impact around that, we realized that we would have to uh, reduce the distribution to the unions. In the, in the second scenario, the September scenario, they would get 35% less 
on the doomsday scenario, they would get 55% less on the distributions they would normally get. Um, both the unions and South African rugby as a headquarter, we had to go through some significant cuts and we ended up with two scenarios. The one is 30% of turnover and the other one is 50% of turnover of the industry as a whole. So if you do the quick calculations, we're basically on a 2.4 billion rand turnover as an industry in, in South Africa. And based on, on the loss of revenue that we would have throughout the industry, we had to go and cut about 1.2 collectively out of, the, out of the budgets and spends of all of the unions. We agreed those principles. Part and parcel of that was an industry salary plan where there was across the board 25% reduction of salaries. Now, that, those started as low as 30% and as high as mid 40% in terms of where you earn. Again, that was a was a pretty tough negotiation, but uh, I have again to compliment all of the unions. We stuck together and we got to a plan. Um, that plan had some challenges in terms of providing some staff and and also some players the opportunity to exit that contract. It was a very very normal negotiation to have in circumstances like that. You cannot unilaterally change people's salary and then provide them the opportunity to seek better employment somewhere else. Um, but we navigated through all of that and very happy to say that the plan works and is working well for us at this, this stage. Integral in that was obviously getting to a point where we stopped scenario planning and that's why we had the pegs in the ground. We were we literally going from day to day, scenario to scenario, and we just wanted to get to a point where we have basically three scenarios and then start working around those scenarios. Um, and once we had once we were able to do that, we actually then went into what we decided to do in terms of return to train and then return to play. Um, I have to say we were at the forefront of that and, and I can't take the credit for that. I've got a very competent uh, colleagues in, in the form of Clint Reddit and Dr. Lee Gordon and, and lots of the, the medical officers of the unions and they were they were integral in what is now the framework not only for South Africa, but also for Pro 14, Sansa, for World Rugby, and is adopted by other federations throughout the world, uh, which is the protocols for return to train and then return to play. We were obviously very dependent on the decisions of government around that, and that changed, um, like everything else, on a on a pro quite a regular basis as the levels were changed. And initially, you know, we we thought that uh, we would only return to train somewhere in August and hopefully playing in September. Uh, you've all heard, subsequently heard uh, the announcements by government and we had had some very interesting negotiations with government and I have to say uh, I can't fault them in the process that they followed up until now and that they have listened to us and have given us a lot of airtime in terms of consideration around uh, the sport and specifically returning to training and returning to play, um, but also understanding that sport as an economic sector is not in the top 50 in the, in the country and is always was going to be from an economical point of view um, lower on the priority list. Um, now there's arguments to be made from social cohesion, the fact that uh, you know we are a, an enabler to, to make sure that there is something else for people to watch and something else for people to do in these very tough times. But the one issue we couldn't get away from is the fact that we are a contact sport. We're all like that. That's why we're in the game. And that's what we have to live with. So 
we had to bide our time uh, going through the process. We delivered a, around about a 500-page document on the protocols for return to train um, and said same for return to play. Um, those documents are very comprehensive and very detailed and is currently with government for their approval so that we can actually get back to the training field that would obviously be on a no-contact base for at least uh, the next month or more. Uh, we hope to get some feedback on that within the next couple of days and hopefully try to return to training um, by next Monday or as soon as we can after that. Um, it might seem simple to, to people, but I mean, once you start reading through the documentation, once you start thinking about the logistics around that, it is a very detailed, a very comprehensive process, but we believe that we're better equipped than anybody else to look after these uh, these issues and to, to be able to deal with the challenges that come with that. Um, and that's purely because, you know, we are we are from a high-performance environment and a high-performance environment that is medically astute and that our medical people are from the, the best of the best within the sporting environment. Um, and with that comes uh, a lot of knowledge and, uh, and a lot of experience around dealing with things uh, that are similar to this. So hopefully we will be successful uh, and we'll be able to return to, to train. We've always set ourselves some targets in terms of player welfare. You can imagine that there's only so much you can do in, a, you know, in the space of your own yard or your own flat um, without gym equipment, without everything else that comes with it. And since we went into level four and three, obviously we're able to get out a little bit, but it's far from the ideal training for a contact sport and getting fit. Um, and getting ready for uh, to get back on the pitch. So uh, we've set ourselves between four to six weeks to get people ready before we can actually get back onto the pitch. And uh, and hopefully, you know, within the within the next month and a half, we can get through that process to be able to get to a return to play in August, which will be a big win for us. Uh, it's a month earlier than what we've been planning for, um, and and hopefully that will will happen um, and realistically it's 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 becoming a, a bigger chance than it previously was just because um, by all indications the spike is moving earlier than what is anticipated um, and the sooner that happens uh, as bad as that might sound um, the better for you know for all of us from a from a collective point of view not only from a rugby point of view economically etc so that we can we can get past this pandemic. Um, having said that, um, our planning then is uh, to have a, a home-based, truncated, uh, domestic version of, of Super Rugby for, uh, for a period of time, and then go into a Curry Cup competition, as well as a under-21 competition, um, and then follow that on with a international exposure pending um, pending decision on those and obviously border restrictions and where we where we are on the, on those elements so what are we considering at the moment um, there's the biosphere bio bubble uh, model uh, whether that's in whether that's in um, in Australasia or, or in South Africa or Argentina those are the, the that's one of the options that we're looking at Alternative to that 
is um, competitions in, in the north um, and, and possible options of, of playing there. And then obviously in the final instance, uh, the options of playing in South Africa, pending our borders being open and, and we having the ability to do that. Um, the July window as it stands has already been moved to October, so October, November, very much an international window. Now that situation is very fluid, as you would know, and uh, we are all awaiting the different announcements around border restrictions and will then be able to make the final decision. In the event that none of those internationals can actually take place, we've got some exciting options that we've been working on uh, for, I would say, at least the last two to three years that but we've been unable to implement just out of no weekends in the year, no time in the year to do these things. We always get these different requests. Um, you know, uh, some of them a little bit extreme. I got a, I got a proposal that the first game of Super Rugby should happen on Robben Island. There is a rugby pitch there, um, and that would be exciting. And there would be some, some, uh, some remarks about uh, being freed as a as a country from, from COVID and being able to play the first match at Robben Island. Uh, I got the suggestion from somebody sitting on this call, actually. Um, they will know who they are, but uh, we thought that a little bit extreme. There's some other options that would work a lot better. Um, and we will reveal those as we as we go along and um, as, as we get more information um, around the rest of the year. So basically, you, you would be you would have a super super rugby version um, based on the fact that the Kings and the Cheetahs most likely won't be able to travel to the north. They will be part of that competition for that month. Uh, we'll then go into the Curry Cup and down in 21s and internationals, as I've said. Um, in terms of the world, um, we have been working really hard on a global calendar. Um, you know, COVID is doing what we as administrators haven't been able to done, do for about 130 years now, and that is getting the, the, the world calendar aligned. Um, because there is no plan at the moment, because there is no script at the moment, it is actually a very easy process to go through. Um, basically, all competitions in the world are on hold. All agreements are either uh, in breach at the moment or is being renegotiated. And very few of us actually know what that world will look like post 2020. And hence, we all busy scenario planning for what will happen in 2021 in a, in a semi-COVID or post-COVID in, environment. Um, the global calendar, in essence, and you might have read most of this in the, in the media already, we've shared it with our unions uh, about a week ago, um, essentially comes down to a move in the Northern Hemisphere from winter rugby to, to summer rugby. Um, so they'll either play the club competitions in the North from December to July or from February to September. There's a potential move of the rugby championship um, from the end of the year towards the beginning of the year along with the Six Nations. And then finally, uh, Super Rugby will obviously, depending on where rugby championships is, either start after that rugby championship at the beginning of the year. And if it doesn't move and it stays in that place, it will, it will you know, start February in the year so that we're in time to finish for the end of the year. The international calendar is an October, November calendar. 
with the move of the World Cups in the future to that same window and also the move of the British and Irish Lions tour into that same window in the future. And that international series will have a different look and feel to it. So the current calendar that we have available, that is up until 2030, um, around inbounds uh, will be thrown away. That was the agreement that was reached in, in San Francisco about three years ago. And it will have a different look and feel. Basically, you know, you'll have England, Wales, and Italy coming to us in October, and then we'll all get on a plane, head back north, and we will play um, Ireland, Scotland, and France, um, and and then we'll have the form of an international series. After that, whoever is the two best teams that come out of that ranking will possibly play in the final at Twickenham. That, that's the that's the the kind of ideas that have been thrown around uh, within that. Um, having said that, on the British and Irish Lions, currently, you know, there's the time is still fixed where it is for next year, but there is there is the slight chance to align with the rest of the global calendar that it might move to either a September, October, or October, November window next year, and that's only because if that's the only hurdle of getting the global calendar across the uh, you know across the line that we wouldn't want to be the hindrance in that. We would want to assist the rest of the world to get that across the line, but we'll know soon enough around that. The global calendar currently being shared amongst all clubs and all unions across the world. Um, we have a catch-up meeting next week and probably will be decided by the by the 1st of July um, next uh, this year already so that everybody can start doing their planning around that. In terms of Sanzo, Obviously, at the moment, busy with our negotiations about the future of Sanzar. We are doing that in good faith, as we always do. Um, I suspect I'll get a lot of questions about um, the, what the players and what the media and ex-media and ex-players are saying in New Zealand and Australia. I have to say I'm not defazed about that. The only people that I'm interested in is the people sitting around the negotiation table with us. And they have a completely different view from what the ex-players or current players or some of the current players have. Um, there is a, a few a few narratives uh, currently there that has an influence on our decisions. Um, the Probably the biggest influence would be for, for the first year next year, if New Zealand and Australia do not open their borders to foreign travelers up until April, May or June next year, which will have a fundamental impact on, on Super Rugby for that year. Uh, we are looking at all of the different options. The previous options are, are obviously not workable anymore, given given the circumstances around COVID and travel and the influences it will have. And we're also looking at the rugby championships uh, options, and those options will obviously be, be influenced as well by where the global calendar nets out in the end. Um, in terms of Pro 14, absolutely keeping on with my negotiations, have been in negotiations for the last 18 months on the expansion of South African teams. That has always been on the cards, um, but that has always been at an expansion of our franchises uh, across the board. What that will look like in a post-COVID world, I can't tell you at the moment, but we keep on um, dealing with that. And in the end, in each and every one of these options in the future, uh, you know, there, there's a rugby decision that will probably carry about 40 40 percent uh, of the of the of the weight in the vote. Uh, I can guarantee you that the other 60 percent will be commercial decisions around the cost around it. 
um, and the cost will be influenced by the logistics. You've got fewer airlines flying, you've got higher airline costs, um, you've got borders that are not open, etc. So those those conversations and those plans are, are being developed at this moment, and we are looking at each and every option that is available. Um, and most of you that know me would know that I'm always have a plan B somewhere in there as well, because uh, the last thing we want is being caught in a situation um, where we haven't thought about the worst case scenario and haven't had uh, uh, the necessary foresight to actually plan for that. Um, and then, you know, when we walk away from, from where we are in terms of, of Sansar and the Pro 14 um, options and where we currently are, you know, there's a lot of talk about private equity and rugby. Um, I am on record that for the last four years, I've been saying that private equity will have a massive influence on rugby and then eventually will probably control rugby. Um, yes, we are in discussion with private equity companies. We would be failing in our duty and our job if we didn't explore all of those avenues. Have we made a decision? No, we have not. We are looking at all of the available options. And then again, private equity is going to look completely different in terms of their offers and their interest in a world that for all of us will be significantly different next year based on revenues and commercials. We will all live in a in a world where the pot will be a lot smaller and we're all still fishing into that same pot or that same pond. Um, so we need to adapt to that. And I'm sure private equity will adapt to that. And I would not put it past them to see there's an opportunity to buy something a lot cheaper based on the value that they can derive from it now because all of our commercial values are down and, and they would probably see the opportunity with, within that. Um, and very happy to talk about what private equity does and, and which direction we go around that. Um, in, in terms and then, you know, maybe just finally, uh, as a last remark, you know, we've, we've just uh, had our EXCO meeting in terms of transformation. I saw some releases on transformation on the weekend. Um, that, that's a little bit behind because um, th those are the reports on 2018. We've just approved our 2019 audit and our 2019 report. Um, and um, we have passed again. Uh, we only live by one thing, and that is the agreement that we have with government and SASCOC um, and the targets that we've set in that. We don't move across uh, that environment within the charter because that's not what we agreed on. We agreed on a set of, of uh, dimensions. I think there's 37 of them, and we are currently way over our targets within that. In actual fact, in far more than half of that, we've already hit the target set for 2030. Um, which is the is the term of this new plan. So we are very happy on where we are in terms of those that we've already hit 2030. Are we happy overall? You know, we're, we're very much in that environment that, you know, we don't celebrate progress. We acknowledge progress. We'll celebrate success. And the day we hit all of those targets across the board, um, you know, and our judge will be the public and the public's perception of where we are. The day we get there, we'll celebrate. In the, in the interim, we'll just acknowledge the fact that we, we've made progress on, on, on all of those elements. So that basically, in, in, in brief, where we are, um, you know, I can, I can talk about the British and Irish lines for a really, really long time. 
um, the most important part of this stage is the tour is going on. Um, there might be a date change, but we are able to manage that. Um, and then just on the tour itself, second to the World Cup, probably the biggest thing there is. I know most of you are can't wait um, that it comes here. You know, we only get that opportunity every 12 years. It's going to be magnificent. The commercial model that we've put up as a joint venture between us and the British and Irish Lions is actually um, pretty out there. Um, we have thrown away the, the textbook on it. It's a complete different model. It's a sharing of revenue. It is a sharing of logos. It's a sharing of IP and, and commercial value uh, and something that in a post-COVID world will, will come in very, very handy in terms of the revenues that it will generate for us and also help us to, to be able to um, you know, operate as a, as a going concern going forward. You would have seen from our financial results, we were actually in a pretty good position. At the end of last year, we've managed to write off all of our debt. Uh, you know, anything that was doubtful, everything was, was taken off our balance sheet and we were actually in a, not a bad position. Um, I'm very happy for that or else we would not be in the position that we are today if we had a lot of other issues to deal with. Um, but, um, you know, we're looking forward. Um, we've got to say thank you to our sponsors. Uh, you know, we've all got issues. Uh, as we are struggling, they are struggling, and they've been very forthcoming in, in assisting us. And so as the broadcasters, you know, and in terms of all of that, we actually know where we are, stand with all of them, and we've dealt with all of those negotiations. So our pegs are in the ground now. We know what we need to do for the rest of the year, um, and hopefully – this pandemic will pass and uh, we'll be able to all go back to, to the game we love. Thank you for listening. Our previous podcasts are available on springbox.rugby and you can subscribe to the SA Rugby podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Please join us again. Goodbye. Thank you for listening and please join us again for the next SA Rugby podcast. For more, click on springbox.rugby or check out our social media channels.